0: Well, let me pray for us as we turn our attention to God's word. Let's pray together. Oh God, we come before you this morning with um, minds full of, of so many things, God. It's, it's hard not to be distracted as we gather, as we... Um, think about the week behind and the week ahead, as we think about the uh, things that we have to do and the things that we um, missed out on that didn't go the way that we wanted. God, there are so many um, things in our lives that would um, wrestle for our attention. There's so many Issues and causes and concerns, good ones in our world that weigh on our hearts. And so, God, this morning we bring all that we are before before you. And we pray, God, that you who knows us and sees us and knows more about us than we could ever know about ourselves, that you would speak to us That through your ancient word by the power of your living spirit. Would you meet with us? Would you help us to see Jesus? God, we pray for your people gathering this morning throughout the world. For those of us in places where we can gather freely, who are prone towards apathy, would you remind us again of the the overwhelming goodness of your gospel? For your people who gather in many places in hiding, God, would you encourage them? Would you strengthen them? For the places in this world where your church is growing rapidly, God, would you bring a purity? And for those places where we are prone to apathy, God, would you give us peace? We pray in Jesus' name, amen. This morning we... Continuing our uh, series we've been in in the book of Nehemiah, so if you've got a Bible, I want to invite you to turn to Nehemiah chapter eight, and I'm going to read that chapter for us this morning. Nehemiah eight it says this, and all the people gathered as one man into the square before the water gate, and they told Ezra the scribe to bring the book of the law of Moses that the Lord had commanded Israel. So Ezra the priest brought the law before the assembly both men and women and all who could understand what they heard on the first day of the seventh month. And he read from it facing the square before the water gate from early morning until midday in the presence of the men and the women and those who could understand. And the ears of all the people were attentive to the book of the law, and Ezra the scribe stood on a wooden platform that they had made for the purpose. And beside him stood Mattathiah, Shema, Ananiah, Uriah, Hilkiah, and Messiah on his right hand, and Padaiah, Mishael, Malkijah, Hashem, Hashbadana, Zechariah, and Meshalem on his left hand. And Ezra opened the book in the sight of all the people, for he was above all the people, and as he opened it, all the people stood, and Ezra blessed the Lord, the great God. And all the people answered, Amen, Amen, lifting up their hands, and they bowed their heads and worshipped the Lord. With their faces to the ground. Also, Jeshua, Bani, Sherebiah, Jamin, Akub, Shebathi, Hodiah, Messiah, Kalaitah, Azariah, Jozebad, Hananiah, Peliah, the Levites, helped the people to understand the law while the people remained in their places. They read from the book of the law of God clearly and they gave the sense so that the people understood the reading. And Nehemiah, who was the governor, and Ezra, the priest and scribe, and the Levites, who taught the people, said to all the people, this day is holy to the Lord your God. Do not mourn or weep, for all the people wept as they heard the words of the law. And then he said to them, go your way, eat the fat, and drink sweet wine, and send portions to anyone who has nothing ready, for this day is holy to the Lord, and do not be grieved, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. So the Levites calmed all the people, saying, Be quiet, for this day is holy. Do not be grieved. And all the people went their way to eat and drink and to send portions and to make great rejoicing because they had understood the words that were declared to them. On the second day, the heads of fathers' houses of all the people with the priests and the Levites came together to Ezra the scribe in order to study the words of the law. And they found it written, in the law, that the Lord had commanded by Moses that the people of Israel should dwell in booths during the feast of the seventh month, and that they should proclaim it and publish it in all their towns and in Jerusalem. Go out to the hills and bring branches of olive, wild olive, myrtle, palm, and other leafy trees to make booths as it is written. So the people went out and brought them and made booths for themselves, each on his roof and in their courts and in the courts of the house of God and in the square at the water gate and in the square at the gate of Ephraim. And all the assembly of those who had returned from the captivity made booths and lived in the booths, from the first, from the day, uh, for from the days of Jeshua, the son of Nun, to that day the people of Israel had not done so. And there was very great rejoicing. And day by day, from the first day to the last day, he read from the book of the law of God. And they kept the feast for seven days, And on the eighth day, there was a solemn assembly according to the rule. And this is God's word. Well, I wonder if you have ever had an experience where you've been talking with someone and you understand all of the words that they're saying, but you have no idea what they actually mean. I think I mentioned this last week, Ashley and I went to grad school in Scotland um, we lived there for three years, and a lot of the time that I lived in Scotland, I spent thinking about how to make sure that I didn't get the look. Now, the look is a, a look that a Scottish person gives to an American person when the Scottish person understands exactly what the American person has said, but they want to make sure that they communicate to the American, you said it wrong, and I think you're stupid. So the look occupied a lot of mental energy for three years when I would try to go in and get out of a store without getting, getting the look. Um, it's a look that you get when somebody says, I understand all the words coming out of your mouth, but the meaning isn't really that clear, and I want to make sure you know that you're wrong. So, for instance, Thanksgiving was coming, or in Scotland, they call it Thursday, and... <laughs> In our house, it's not Thanksgiving without pumpkin pie. And so I went to the grocery store, and I got to get a pan, uh, thing, a canned pumpkin. But you can't go into the grocery store and find canned pumpkin in Scotland. And so you have to do the worst thing in the world, which is go and ask somebody for help. And you know that you're going to get the look, because then I go and I say, Can I ha- I'm looking for, uh, well, I know I don't say canned pumpkin, so I say I'm looking for tinned pumpkin. And... This person looks at me with the look that says, I understand what you mean, but how would you get a whole pumpkin into a can? And I think you're stupid. Um, (laughs) You know, I get all the words that you're saying. They just don't really make any sense. I think that's a little bit like what's happening in this passage. Where the people um, come and they ask Nehemiah, to or they ask Ezra rather to read God's word to them and they understand all of the words but they don't understand at first what they mean the people have rebuilt this wall around Jerusalem and Nehemiah who is the governor he's the political leader he has been leading them but now they gather and they ask Ezra who is the priest and the scribe he's a scholar he's the you know he's the spiritual leader of God's people at this time and they ask Ezra to read God's word to them And what's happening initially is a little bit like what I was experiencing living in a different country in a different culture. They understand the words, but they miss the meaning. They listen to God's words, but they don't understand what they mean. Until the story of Scripture begins to reshape their experience. And that, I think, is... I'm wrestling with whether I'm going to overstate this. I don't think this is an overstatement. That is the crucial issue facing the Christian church today: is will we allow God's word to reshape our experience, or will we, through our experience, reshape our understanding of God's word? That is the fa- that is the question that Christians face today. Will we seek to understand God's word in light of our circumstances and experiences, or will we seek to understand... I got confused on how I said it. (laughs) You understand what I mean now, right? Will we seek to understand God's word in light of our circumstances and experiences, or will we seek to understand our circumstances and experiences in light of God's word? Because there are always temptations There are always temptations to allow our experience to shape the way that we come to God's word. And it's understandable. Um, But we do damage to God's word when we when we do it in that order. And and we see this, you know, in ourselves, we see this in our culture, we see this in the church. Um, this happens on all sides of the political spectrum, where we try to we 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 take as given our experiences or our circumstances. And then we seek to sort of shoehorn the Bible into our experience. On the right, there's the temptation to view the world, to conceive of the world primarily in economic or political categories. And then use the Bible to justify those positions. And on the left, we see things like redefining gender and sexuality. And then the attempt occasionally by some to accommodate the Bible into justifying those positions. And the challenge for the church today is not to simply dismiss people's concerns, to dismiss people's circumstances, to dismiss people's experiences like they don't matter, of course not. The challenge for the church is rather to move into places of brokenness with grace and compassion and allow God's word to interpret our circumstances and our experiences. And there's a sense in which living In a time of deep cultural change, like the one that we are living through, that Christian maturity, that growing as a Christian means learning to live a cross-cultural lifestyle, a lifestyle where we have one foot planted in our culture and one foot planted firmly in God's word. We're living in a different culture, I was constantly trying to translate my experience into language that would make sense to the people that I was talking with, and vice versa. Maturing as a Christian means living with a foot in this world and a foot planted firmly in God's word. And that is what's happening here in Nehemiah chapter 8. And there's much for us to glean here as God's people emerging from exile, regathering and rebuilding with new challenges, we must rediscover God's word, and we must find our place within the story of God's word. So those are the two points this morning. Firstly, rediscovering God's word. Rediscovering God's word. As we've uh, seen over the past several weeks, God's people have been in exile, and now under the thumb of the Persian Empire, Nehemiah has led God's people to return to their land, to rebuild the wall around Jerusalem, and now the wall is finished. But as we talked about last week, just because the wall is finished, the work isn't done. And in fact, now that the wall is finished, we begin to see the true purpose of building the wall in the first place. God is bringing his people back from exile to reestablish them as his people, and he's guiding them through his word so that they might be a blessing to the entire world. And so it is in our time. God is regathering us, inviting us to rebuild as he's reestablishing us as his people through his word so that we might be a blessing to the rest of the world. And we see this, I think, every time that God begins to sort of gather his people in in a new time or in a new Way It is always founded on the Word of God. I mean, there are numerous examples throughout Scripture and throughout history. When God comes to Moses and says, Moses, I want you to lead my people out of captivity in, 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 in Egypt. God reveals himself. Uh, he speaks to Moses. We see this in 2 Kings when God's people have all but abandoned God And somebody decides to do, Josiah the king decides to clean up the temple and it's like they're having a yard sale and somebody finds the Bible. (laughs) As they're they're clearing out all the junk, somebody finds a Bible and and they go, man, we should read that thing. (laughs) And they do and it begins this period of revival for God's people. We see this in history. Whenever there's a revival of God's people, it always begins with a rediscovery of God's word. Uh, We see this, at various times of revival. We see this at the beginning of the Protestant Reformation as the Bible is translated into the common language and people can read the Bible for themselves. And this is the same thing that we see here in Nehemiah 8. It's Rosh Hashanah, the seventh month, which is the Jewish New Year. I have no idea why the New Year starts on the seventh month, but that's the way it goes. And... um. God's people, having rebuilt the wall, they gather on the first day of the seventh month and they ask Ezra, the priest, the scholar, the religious leader, to read God's word to them. And you can tell in the way they approach God's word that they have respect for God's word. Um, they, they, have, they have a high view of the authority of God's word, but they, they approach God's word sort of like it's a family tradition, like it's something that's really important, but they're not entirely sure why. Uh, they build this platform. They build a platform for Ezra to stand on, to read um, God's word from. And, and you see Ezra's there, and there's six men on his right, and there's six men on his left, and so there's, there's this sense of like weightiness to um, what they're doing here. And Ezra begins to read the Bible and all of the people stand to show their respect and give deference to God's word. And he reads, it says in verse 1, the book of the law of Moses, which is how they referred to the first five books of the Bible, the, uh, the, what we call the Old Testament, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. And um, Ezra begins to read these words, and, and there's these men, there's 12 men with him, probably because... They take turns reading, it says they read for most of the day, right? He's not going to, one guy's not going to stand there and read the Bible for hours and hours upon it. And they, uh, they took turns, maybe they stopped every once in a while to explain the meaning of the passage. And at first, the people don't understand God's word. It says they begin to weep and to mourn. And Ezra and Nehemiah tell them, no, don't weep, this is good news. And it says, like, it says that the Levites, who are like the pastors of the time, they, they went out among the people and they explained to the people, uh, it says, it's, it, to give them the sense, right? To, to explain what it meant to them so that the people can understand. And understanding is, a, is a, it's like the main theme of this passage, uh, this chapter. The word understand is repeated four times, talking about the importance of um, as God's people, that we don't simply read God's word or hear God's word, but we understand God's word. So why can't the people understand? You know, why don't they just listen as God's word is read? Obviously, they didn't all have their own copy of, of the Bible, right, in those days, but they, they could hear it. Why couldn't, they, why couldn't they just understand it for themselves and apply it to their lives? Well, there's a, there's a few reasons, I think, that are possible why they misunderstood what they were hearing. The first is that Moses lived. I don't know, 800 or 1,000 years before this time, Ezra Nehemiah 445 BC. Um, So um, it's been a long time, (laughs) and and maybe the Hebrew language has changed. Scholars aren't really sure if um, we know that by the time of Jesus that the Jews don't speak primarily Hebrew. Um, And so it's possible that already at this time that that Hebrew isn't even their primary language, um, that that they they speak Aramaic. We're not not sure about that. But even still, I mean, it's been a thousand years. And so it it might be like reading, you know, Shakespearean um, English sounds to us where we understand it, but it's a little bit clunky feeling. My wife's going to talk to me about that characterization later. (laughs) that's okay. There could be a little bit of a language gap. Um, it could be because it's just been a long time. The life circumstances that they are facing are, are very different than, um, you know, what, what the people of God were going through when God was leading through Moses his people out of slavery in Egypt 1,800 years before. Um, maybe, maybe it's that as God's word is being read, they're hearing the commandments and they're realizing, oh no, we don't, we don't actually keep any of these commandments, and, and they're, they're realizing that they're not living up to God's standard. And they're wondering if they will receive the curses that are, that are specified in God's word. Or if it was too late for them. Maybe as they're listening to the story of God bringing his people out of slavery and into freedom. They're realizing that they're not actually free. That they, though they're back in their land, that they're still under the occupation of the Persian Empire. And they're wondering if it's too late for them now. There's a lot of reasons why they're just struggling to understand. And I think, honestly, it's really helpful for us to, to just be aware of that reality, that we are not the first people to think, you know, sometimes the Bible's hard to understand. And we have to recognize that the Bible isn't, um, isn't understood if it's not in its proper context. It's, me- it's easy to misunderstand if we take the Bible out of its context Uh, It can feel like it's out of touch with our lives. It can feel like it's describing something that happened in a place so different than ours so long ago with people who were so different than we are. Um, It's easy to misunderstand. It's easy to feel like it's irrelevant. It might sound accusing and condemning. God's standards can sound unattainable and lead us to a sense of guilt and shame. In short, it's possible to read the Bible like it's bad news. And I think that's what's happening here when when the people hear God's word and the response is to weep and to mourn. They're hearing it like it's bad news. And so Ezra and Nehemiah have to keep correcting the people's misunderstanding of the Bible. And in verse 10, it says, Then he said to them, Go your way, eat the fat and drink sweet wine and send portions to anyone who has nothing ready. He's saying like, this is a celebration for this day is holy to our Lord and do not be grieved for the joy of the Lord is your strength. He's saying, Ezra's saying, this is good news. This is not bad news. We should be rejoicing. This is a reason to celebrate. This is a reason to be happy. Don't don't weep. Don't mourn. Don't be sad. We're We're missing the story if we're hearing the Bible like we're hearing bad news, because the Bible is not bad news. The Bible is good news, is good news. Because behind the laws and the commandments, and behind the prayers and the instructions for worship, and behind all of the the details uh, and the people and the heroes of the Bible, there is a single uh, story It is about God rescuing his people. And like Nehemiah, like the people in the time of Nehemiah, people just like us can often fail to understand what we're reading when we're reading the Bible. They were reading these first five books of the Bible. They were reading Genesis maybe all the way through Deuteronomy. And what the people heard when Ezra and others read the first five books of the Bible is this, God is determined to rescue his people from slavery and bring them into freedom and into a relationship with himself. And that is, the t- that is the main point of Genesis and Exodus and Leviticus and Numbers and Deuteronomy, and it's the main and only point of the whole story of the Bible, all 66 books. The Bible isn't a whole bunch of different stories about random people in different times just trying hard to be nicer or something, and God occasionally doing something really strange. (laughs) The story of the Bible is one beautiful and majestic and grand story from beginning to end that tells a story of rescue, of God's promise to free his people from slavery to sin and to dwell in our midst. It's about God coming to rescue us. And this is why every single week we come back to that reality in some way, shape, or form, because no matter where we are looking at in the Bible, that's what this is all about. And this is why every week at the table we celebrate communion together, because it brings us back to the, the heart of the gospel, the, the, the core message that the Bible is good news, because God is coming to rescue us. And this is why we chose the curriculum that we have for Table Kids, because we want to teach our children that the Bible is not a random collection of stories about heroes, but it's one story about God rescuing his people. We're teaching our kids that the Bible is one story from beginning to end about what God does about rescuing his people. From chapter 1 in the book of Genesis, from the first chapter of Genesis, the story of the Bible is this. God creates human beings in order to dwell in our midst. And when we rebel, then we can no longer stand to live in God's presence. That that the presence of God would be um, more than we could bear. God is determined to rescue us from sin and to restore us to a relationship with himself. At the center of the story of Scripture is Jesus, where God writes himself into the story. God says, I'm not just going to tell this story, and I'm not just going to make promises in this story, but I'm actually going to come into the story myself, where he puts our flesh upon himself. He finally comes to rescue us fully and completely. He shows us what a perfect life looks like. He goes to the cross, taking our sin to buy us back from death. And as he dies and as he rises again, he sends his spirit to live within us and he begins to write us into that story as well. And he's showing us that just as we have been brought back, or bought back rather, from death, from slavery to sin and death, we have been, okay, I was wondering if that was happening slowly, so now I know. (laughs) <laughs> well Well, this will be interesting. Okay. <laughs> so what was I talking about the Holy Spirit? <laughs> um, it's kind of been one of those weeks, so OK. So the Holy Spirit comes to live within us, to write us into the story of what God is doing. And then the final chapters of the Bible, I mean, where does the Bible end? It ends with God once again dwelling in the midst of his people. It's about the promises of God finally coming to their fulfillment. The end of the story is about the time when the full effects of the redemption that Jesus has bought for us on the cross ripple their way out into the furthest corners of the universe. And we will once more live in God's presence. That's the story of the scriptures. It's not about heroes that we can't relate to. It's not um, about what we must do to earn God's favor. Does this look really weird now? (laughs) Maybe I can use this. about what God has done to rescue his people. And this, as, as Ezra and Nehemiah and others are reading the story, it's like the lights are slowly beginning to turn on for the people. That's what Ezra, Nehemiah, and the Levites are explaining to the people. This is not just about Moses. This is not just about other people, our ancestors who lived 1,000 years ago, this is about us, too. And they begin to find their place in the story of Scripture. They begin to realize this isn't a story about something that happened, but this is also a story about something that is happening even now. God is writing us into the story they're realizing. I heard the story of a, um, a mother who was really concerned because she had a teenage daughter, and this mother was worried that her daughter was hanging out with the wrong sorts of kids. Her daughter was hanging out with these kids and they were Christians and and um, they were part of a, a youth group and this mom did not want her daughter hanging out with these horrible people. And then one day the mother is livid because these friends of her daughters have given her a Bible. and She's angry. And the mom is so angry that after uh, the rest of the family goes to bed, she gets up and she goes downstairs and and she she finds that Bible that these horrible um, uh, friends had given her daughter, and she sa- she decides she's going to read this book, and she's going to sort of get to the bottom uh, of it and expose it for what it really is. And she doesn't know where to start. so she opens the table of contents and she, she discovers that there's an old Version and a new version. And so she says, well, I guess I'll start with the newer version. Um, and she begins to read the Gospel of Matthew. And sometime after midnight, this mother praised Jesus, I never knew. I never knew how, how beautiful you really are. And she begins to find her place in the story of God's word. And God is writing her into his story. And I think the question for us is simply this. How's that happened? How's that happened to you? I've seen this happen in so many people. It's one of the privileges of getting to be a pastor. I've seen the lights come on in the lives of children and college students and men and women and. Their middle ages and in, and in people in their 80s finding their places in the story of Scripture. That's what's happening here in Nehemiah 8. You can hear that they, that they kind of get the words and then they don't really understand what's happening. But then slowly they begin to find themselves in the story of Scripture. They begin to realize that is not just a description of something that happened a long time ago. That's our story as well, and so they come back the second day, and they come back the next day, and and it says this that um, in verses thirteen and fourteen it says, on the second day the heads of fathers' houses of all the people with the priests and the Levites came together to Ezra the scribe in order to study the words of the law, and they found written in it in the law that the Lord had commanded by Moses that the people of Israel should dwell in booths during the feast of the seventh month. Now, you're probably going, how in the world is that the moment that they realized that they were a part of this story? What they're describing is the festival of booths. There were three main major festivals in the Jewish calendar. And so the festival of booths was this annual festival where people would go out and they would cut down branches and they would build these little booths or little tents and if they lived in jerusalem they would build them on their roofs and if they lived in villages further out they would build them anywhere there was land i guess in the city and the whole people of god had this like camp out for a week together and as they're reading the Bible and they're, they're hearing, it describes this in Leviticus 23, and so it's part of the, the book of the, the law of Moses, these first five books, and they're reading this. And they realize that's now. That, that happens now in the, in the seventh month, and we, we should do that. Because God's word says it, we should do it. And so they do. And so here in Nehemiah, they read this and they think, well, we should, we should obey God's word. And, and they do, and as they do that, as they do that, that's when they begin to understand that this is not just the story of something that happened a thousand years ago. It's their story as well. They begin to realize, see, what's the, 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 the festival of booths? The whole reason for the festival of booths is it's, it's about remembering how the people of Israel lived in booths for 40 years during the, their time through the Sinai wilderness, and for 40 years when God, uh, between the time when God brought people, his people out of slavery in Egypt until they came into the promised land that they had lived in the wilderness in tents and tabernacles and God dwelt in their midst in the tabernacle. And so this is what they're celebrating in Nehemiah 8 as they begin to build these tents and booths on their rooftops and courtyards. And as they do that, what's beginning to happen is they're realizing we're not just celebrating something that happened a thousand years ago. But this is actually our story as well because just like God's people had been in the wilderness in the time of Moses, in the time of Nehemiah, and leading up to the time of Nehemiah, they've been in exile in Babylon and in Persia. This is their story. God's people have been living in a foreign land they are God's people who He's rescued and who He's brought back. And so they are celebrating not just rescue in the distant past. You know, like we might if we go see um, Gettysburg, you know, a, a, a war monument, a, a remembrance of something that happened in the past. You no, know, they're realizing we are celebrating God rescuing us. We are celebrating God rescuing us too. We are taking our place in the story of God's people and God's word and they rejoice and they celebrate and their booths are not just about God protecting a different people, their ancestors thousand years ago, but they were about God rescuing these people in Nehemiah 8 too. And we might think, well that's great and that's, that's fascinating how they begin to understand that this is their story too, but what does that have to do with us and where are we in this story? God's promise that the story of rescue throughout the, the prophets hint at this in the Old Testament. The prophets begin to say that the, the story of God's rescue is not just going to be for the people of Israel, ethnic Jews, but that it will one day come to the farthest seashores, that it will be for all people. And finally, in Jesus, uh, God's promise becomes actuality as Jesus comes and he takes on flesh and he lives and dies on the cross and he enacts our rescue but then the last thing that Jesus does before he ascends into heaven is he tells his followers he says now you're going to take this message this gospel to all the nations to the ends of the earth and that is us and we are the fruit of of generations and generations of faithfulness from God's people. And we find ourselves in God's story because the reality is that each generation of Christians must find ourselves in the story of God's promise of rescue. These aren't simply stories of what God has done in the past, thousands of years ago. This is our story as well. In the last just week or two even, I've been talking with a friend who has kind of come and said, I, I, I've been reading the, the Bible and there's some parts of the Bible that I always thought were kind of extra credit, that they were for like the super spiritual Christians and I'm, and I'm realizing that actually this is for me too and he's beginning to write down all of the promises and commands of God and then pray and consider what would it look like to actually follow these he's reading and he's responding in every age every generation every individual christian has to at some point not just see this is a story of rescue for some people at some place at some time but this is my story this is what god is doing in my life every generation of christians corporately has to appropriate this for ourselves every church who's wanting to know what does it look like to regather and rebuild and be faithful to what God is calling us to be and to do in this place, and this time, we'll have to find our place in the story of Scripture and realize it's through appropriating the message that God is rescuing us that we actually become a blessing to our neighbors. And that's what it looks like to find ourselves in the story of God's word. What do the people do They remember and they obey. The festival of booths is all about remembering. It's about remembering what God has done. And it's about responding faithfully. I know the word obedience doesn't sound very inviting. It's about remembering what God has done for us and then living in light of that reality. We don't just hear God's word. We take it seriously. We respond to the invitation And that's what turns our confusion and mourning into understanding and rejoicing. That's what makes it possible to do what Ezra and Nehemiah say in verse 10. So what makes that possible for us? The joy of the Lord is your strength. The joy of the Lord is your strength. What does that mean? That doesn't mean that we um, have to sort of like manufacture an emotional response to the story of scripture, right? It's, it's not talking about our joy. It's talking about God's joy. And it's not talking about our, you know, uh, us becoming joyful because God gives us his joy. Now, it's about God's joy himself. So what, what is God's joy? Well, the, the author of the book of Hebrews says that for the joy that was set before him, Jesus endured the cross despising its shame. And what, what, what could the joy possibly be that would allow Jesus to endure the cross? Well, it was you. It was, it was me. It wasn't the love of God. He already had the love of God. It wasn't authority. Jesus has already created all that exists. It was the rescue of his people. It was you. And what this passage is saying is that rescuing his people brings God joy. Rescuing you brings God great joy. And that reality, the reality that God has rescued us, is our strength. It is the thing that allows us to endure tomorrow. Remember and obey. God has made His story of rescue, our story. Amen. Let me see if there are any questions. I'm sorry, I keep forgetting to remind you that you can text in questions during the um, sermon. And I will do my best to respond to those. So there are a couple questions here. Okay, so should the relationship between our experience and the Bible really be single-directional? For example, if one only looked at the Bible, it could reasonably be argued that the world is flat, but we can confidently take references to the four corners of the earth as metaphorical because our experience shows that the world is clearly spherical. Okay, so I definitely agree that the world is round. (laughs) I'm um not sure I'm fully understanding the relationship between the the question and the second part should the relationship between our experience and the bible really be single directional um I no, I don't I wouldn't say that um I'm sorry I don't think I'm I'm understanding the question um but the the the, the bible is Gosh, there, there's so much to be said about the Bible that I can't I can't do in one um, sermon alone, but um, the the Bible is a story that reshapes our orientation of uh, of who God is and who we are in light of that reality. So no, it's not single directional. It's um, we listen to God's word, we pray, we respond. Yeah, I'm sorry, I, I'm not sure I'm actually understanding the question, but. If you want to come and follow up with me or text again, I'll, I'll try to get back to you. Um, so did I eventually find tinned pumpkin? We did, <laughs> but not at the grocery store. We had to go to a specialty store to find it. Um, secondly, they all stood to respect God's word. What does respecting God's word mean for us here today? Uh, so that's a great question. And um, again, there's so much more than I could possibly answer in a, in a quick Q&A. But um, what does respecting God's word mean for us here today? You know, I I think that the thing I would want to say is that there are are so many voices in our world. Um, We live in a time where this shapes my life far more than this (laughs) shapes my life. And it's, it's one thing to say that we believe the Bible is true and good and, it, like, helps us to be more gracious people. Um, it's another thing to actually, like, do that, live like that's true, if that makes sense. And so I, I feel like in some ways this whole sermon is kind of leading to a point that, that, that maybe feels a little bit, like okay, I went to church and the pastor told me I should read the Bible more often. Um, you know, there there are there've been different approaches to how how to. Um, I, I grew up in a kind of church environment where ha- reading the Bible every day felt like a very legalistic obligation, and so there was certainly a, a time in my life where. The freedom from that legalism was an important um, reality. And yet, I I have to say, I think it's really hard to understand how we could... uh, I'm not saying reading the Bible makes you a Christian or that you're not a Christian if you don't read the Bible. But it's it's really hard to understand how we could say that we are followers of a God whose word we don't ever read. So, I think reading the Bible, (laughs) being shaped by the Bible, taking the Bible seriously... Striving in our imperfection to um, to listen to and obey God's word is is part of is a big part of what taking the Bible seriously and respecting the Bible looks like. Okay, um, would you pray with me as we come to the Lord's table? Let's pray together. God, we thank you that you speak to us, that you don't um, kind of throw us into the world and leave us to figure things out. God, through your word, you are present with us, you are shaping us, you're forming us into the people that you've called us to be. We pray that as we come to the Lord's table this morning, that you would strengthen us, that you would use... um, this bread and this wine to strengthen our faith to be the sorts of people who uh, can look with faith uh, to Jesus, that we might uh, find ourselves in the story that he is writing in human history. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.